I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the FT Big Read, a weekly podcast featuring the best of our long-form reporting from around the world. I'm Anna Dudder from the Comment and Analysis Desk. This podcast, report by Tom Mitchell from Xinjiang, it's one of three articles by the Financial Times on China's great game, its ambitious new Silk Road project that experts say Beijing will use to assert regional leadership in Asia, economically, diplomatically and militarily. Before it can realise this dream, the Chinese government must tame its own wild west, this huge, remote, energy-rich region that is home to a violent insurgency by its ethnic Uyghur population. Tom says it's easy to see why Beijing is fixated on Xinjiang. As one of the world's most remote and landlocked regions, Xinjiang is not high on the itinerary for foreign dignitaries visiting China. So when George Osborne, the UK's chancellor, made a special request to visit Xinjiang last month, it was unexpected and controversial, but also welcomed by the Chinese government. Xinjiang is a linchpin in President Xi Jinping's new Silk Road project that aims to revive the ancient trade routes that connected imperial China to Europe and Africa. Mr. Osborne described his detour to Xinjiang's capital, Urumqi, as proof of his government's determination to be, quote, bold abroad. It was indeed a bold choice, and not just because of the region's remoteness. A vast area about three times the size of France, Xinjiang, which translates literally as New Frontier, is home to a violent insurgency that is a frequent source of frustration and embarrassment for Beijing. The unrest burst onto the global stage in 2009, and thousands of Muslim Uyghurs, the region's biggest ethnic group, went on a rampage in Urumqi. The race riot left 197 people dead, most of them Han Chinese. A steady pattern of low-level violence has followed, as if on cue, while Mr. Osborne visited a property investment company and football academy in Urumqi, a manhunt was underway for the perpetrators of a massacre at a coal mine in southern Xinjiang that left more than 50 people dead. For the architects of Mr. Xi's Silk Road project, the slaughter at the Sogan coal mine, which neither the Chinese government nor state media have yet acknowledged, was a reminder of the challenges that lie ahead as Beijing begins playing a great game of its own in Central Asia and beyond. To realize this dream of an infrastructure-led revival of commerce and prosperity across the Eurasian landmass, the Chinese government will first have to tame its own Wild West. At the moment, however, it is refusing to budge from policies that only seem to be fanning the flames of ethnic unrest. Over the past 60 years, the Han, China's dominant ethnic group, have increased their proportion of Xinjiang's population from 6% to more than 40%, fueling widespread resentment among Uyghurs who see the influx as part of a deliberate attempt by Beijing to dilute their community's religious and cultural identity. James Leibold, a China scholar at La Trobe University in Melbourne, says, quote, Xi Jinping sees Xinjiang as absolutely critical for his agenda. It's not just about security and solving the Uyghur issue. It's also about building this new Silk Road economic belt. 
The Chinese Communist Party needs to convince a weary Han public and foreign governments that the anti-terror campaign has succeeded and shift the narrative to Xinjiang as the gateway to the new Silk Road and the countless opportunities that await those willing to invest in the region. It is easy to see why Beijing is fixated on the region. Xinjiang holds China's largest natural gas reserves, 40% of its coal, and 22% of its oil. More importantly, it is the gateway to even larger energy deposits in Central Asia. Huge investments have been made in infrastructure needed to tap those resources, including an oil pipeline running from Kazakhstan and a natural gas pipeline from Turkmenistan. The oil and gas pipelines, which came online before Mr. Xi came to power, represented the first of a three-stage transaction that sends natural resources to China in return for payments that Central Asian nations then used to buy everything from Chinese consumer goods to capital equipment. Beijing very much wants these trade patterns to expand, especially as it seeks to secure energy resources that, unlike Middle Eastern oil, do not need to pass through the vulnerable Strait of Malacca and volatile South China Sea. But Mr. Xi's vision has an added emphasis on cross-border high-speed railways and motorways, such as the Karakoram Highway connecting southern Xinjiang and Pakistan, which should foster a broader range of commerce. Beijing has been pouring cash into Xinjiang, which recorded expenditures of 1.3 trillion RMB, or about 160 billion U.S. dollars, last year against revenues of just 454 billion RMB. State financial transfers to the region rose to 1.1 trillion RMB in the 2009 to 14 period almost double what had been remitted over the previous 54 years, while richer provinces have invested another 54 billion RMB in 4,900 aid projects. Mr. Leibold says Mr. Xi is effectively doubling down on his predecessor's bet that big investments in economic development and regional security forces will quell the unrest in Xinjiang. While Beijing maintains it is combating what it calls the three forces of ethnic separatism, religious extremism, and terrorism in the region, others argue that the violence stems from a government strategy that has alienated Xinjiang's Uyghur community. Of the 23 million people living in the arid but energy-rich region, Uyghurs account for about 43% of the population, down from as much as 90% before the establishment of the People's Republic of China in 1949. Many of Xinjiang's cities are plastered with crude, billboard-sized cartoons depicting the hell that awaits those who succumb to Islamic fundamentalism and the heaven for those who embrace a, quote, unified and multi-ethnic China. At a food market in Aksu, a hub for a larger agricultural and mining area, a Uyghur trader waves a dismissive hand at the warnings. That propaganda is all rubbish, he says in heavily accented Chinese. There is no freedom in Xinjiang. The inability of so many Uyghurs to attain even basic proficiency in Chinese, most speak Uyghur, a language related to Turkish, is one of the reasons they are passed over for the best jobs and why Han migrants are often better placed to seize opportunities. In a visit to the region last year, Mr. Xi acknowledged that, quote, resource exploitation has enriched large enterprises and entrepreneurs rather than the local area and its people. The Chinese government, however, says there is no connection between the violence and its own policies in Xinjiang. It instead blames terrorists and religious extremists, some of them allegedly funded or inspired by foreign groups whose aim is to split up China. The state council said in a recent white paper published on the 60th anniversary of the establishment of Xinjiang as a so-called special autonomous region, quote, 
These violent and bloody crimes show clearly that the perpetrators are anything but representatives of national or religious interests. They are a great and real threat to ethnic unity and social stability in Xinjiang. An alternative explanation is that Beijing is now confronted with an entirely homegrown problem rooted in flawed policies that the government refuses to acknowledge, let alone correct. As a result, some critics believe the region risks a downward spiral in which violence begets an ever more militarized response that begets additional violence, and all at a time when Xinjiang is more central than ever to the ruling Communist Party's larger geopolitical objectives. Xinjiang now resembles a militarized state with a blatant police and military presence. While most experts say its insurgency does not qualify as a low-intensity conflict, evidence of the potential for violence is everywhere. An Urumqi street where five alleged Uyghur separatists killed 31 people last year is a bar area by night, with private armed guards protecting each establishment. People entering Urumqi's People's Park, a popular recreation area in the city center, are searched by soldiers in stab-resistant vests and helmets while armed police patrol the park grounds in groups of five or more. Feng Guoping, a Han Chinese resident of Urumqi, says, quote, Everything has changed since July 5th referring to the date of the city's deadly 2009 riots. Mr. Fung adds, quote, Now we are on guard against the Uyghurs, and they are on guard against us. Mr. Fung's parents moved to Urumqi from Jiangsu province when he was 11 because they thought he would have a better chance at getting into university in Xinjiang. In Aksu, almost every symbol of the state, from police stations to telecommunications offices, is protected by barbed wire and barricades. Hotels and shopping centers force visitors to pass through metal detectors before entering. A meat and vegetable market with stalls run almost entirely by Han Chinese migrants is protected by security guards armed with nail-spiked bars. Critics of Chinese government policy in the region say the steady pattern of violence can be traced to the issue of document number 7 in the mid-1990s. Essentially a strategy blueprint for how to combat an upsurge in violence, the document blamed the deteriorating situation on, quote, the infiltration and sabotaging activities of foreign religious powers. It also called for a security-led response and tighter religious controls. The document's adoption ended a 1980s policy that emphasized relatively more autonomy and tolerance in Xinjiang and Tibet, after the decimation of both regions' distinct cultural and religious traditions during the Cultural Revolution. Zhang Jiaoyong, a Beijing-based ethnic affairs analyst, agrees with the analysis underpinning document number seven, arguing that, quote, the violence has something to do with the fact that many people spend all their time praying and chanting scripts. Human Rights Watch counters that China's war on terror at home has been used to justify, quote, pervasive ethnic discrimination, severe religious repression, and increasing cultural suppression in Xinjiang. Analysts also doubt the government's claim that the East Turkestan Islamic Movement and other shadowy groups are behind many of the attacks. Etim, they suspect, is more bark than bite than a convenient scapegoat. David O'Brien, a regional expert at the University of Nottingham, Ningbo, says, quote, When we try to understand who these people are, there is a complete absence of information. What are portrayed as coordinated attacks might be more localized issues. Wang Lishong, a prominent government critic, says the adoption of document number seven signified a return to hardline ethnic policies. He says, quote, a new tone was set, and that same policy is still in force today. 
Political repression combined with significant economic support. It's one hand hard and one hand soft. It is, in fact, an approach that dates back to at least the mid-18th century when the Qing dynasty extended China's borders and offered conquered peoples grace if they submitted to the emperor's might. Under communist rule, grace includes local government investment in refurbishing weaker villages, transforming them into quaint tourist destinations. Ajahan Wuxur, 68, was the beneficiary of one such project in Turpan, an oasis town near Urumqi. Miss Wuxur, who now runs a tourist restaurant from her home, says, Previously we could only make money selling grapes. There were fixed quotas for production and we had no other income. At the other end of the policy spectrum, boys and girls under the age of 18 are barred from places of worship, while bans on so-called unusual or strange beards and headscarves are common. Xinjiang's more than 800,000 civil servants, about half of whom are ethnic minorities, are prohibited from participating in religious activities. One religious leader who asked not to be identified says he often performed private home ceremonies for government officials. He says, quote, it still happens, but it must be kept secret with very few guests. Reza Hasmath at Oxford University argues that the government's one-hand-hard, one-hand-soft policy has failed to address two of the weaker community's long-standing grievances, poor job opportunities despite having a higher average educational level than Han Chinese in the region, and a lack of meaningful political representation. He says, quote, these soft and hard policies don't get to the underlying root causes of conflict in Xinjiang. Younger generation Uyghurs want to have their expectations met in the labor market. When those expectations are not met, they turn to their ethnicity and religion. According to Mr. Wong, another consequence of the government's policies in Xinjiang has been an eradication of moderate Uyghur voices who advocate an approach that emphasizes religious tolerance and political autonomy. Uyghurs advocating this message are increasingly treated as, quote, violent ethnic separatists in disguise, as evidenced by last year's prosecution of Ilhan Toti. Mr. Toti, an ethnic Uyghur professor at Minzu University in Beijing, an important bridge between his community and the government, was handed a life sentence for allegedly advocating independence. Ilham Toti was in fact very moderate, says Mr. Wong, who has been banned from publishing in China and is subject to routine police harassment for his criticism of Beijing's ethnic policies. He continues, But the government wants you to be either an enemy or a flunky. It's hard for them to deal with someone who stands in the middle. To read the full series on China's great game, Go to www.ft.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.